Cruise podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew Frank Watto. Uh, hi, <laughs> Stuart. How are hi. you, buddy? I'm doing. You're do- you're doing. Uh, <laughs> are you are you sad? I thought we just had a great time recording this episode with Uncle Bob. Oh, we're done. <laughs> this is the intro. We've done this okay. before. Uh, Paul, are you here? Um, yeah, physically. <laughs> Okay, so this is the Curbsiders podcast. With us, to, this is our, our Journal Club episode, or, or Hot Cakes and Hot Takes, as we call it. And with us tonight, we have a big crew. Chris, the Chew Man, Chew, is going to uh, kind of walk us through the setup here. And Ooh, uh, he'll, he'll introduce Uncle Bob. Yeah, we have a very special guest today. You, you might remember him from our Curbsider classics, such as number 16, teach internal medicine like a master educator, um, number 17, sore throat, absent cough, ask Dr. Centaur, and who can forget the classic episode number 76, pneumonia pearls with Dr. Robert Centaur. So joining us today is our Kashik Memorial's very own chair of medicine, Dr. Robert Centaur. I hope you have some applause in the background. <laughs> like, like many chairs of medicine, uh, I'm not around very much, uh, but I have been listening, and uh, the boys are doing a good job. Thank you. That that means a lot coming from you. And I, I, I would have to say right back at you with the, the five good minutes on Twitter, which I, I get a lot of good article recommendations from that. And I also appreciate the the kind of like teaching or the, the pearls for like how to write, I think most recently it was about soap notes and all that stuff is great. I like it. I'm yeah. still parsing through that. I still have to consider I'm, I'm yeah. so alien to what I'm used to doing that I, I still need to ruminate on it. I've been thinking about responding and then coward out. out. <laughs> Good stuff. Dr. Santor, my favorite recent one was about your um, article on the calculation for osmolality. I thought that was very interesting. That, that, that was a fun study to do, uh, and it shakes everybody up because everybody wants to tell me what the corrected uh, sodium is, and it never works out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, do you want to let the, remind the audience uh, the rules of this journal club that we're about to go through? And this one, uh, I guess we, we sort of broke our own rules here. We went, uh, we went long on this one, but we're kind of known for that. So uh, get over it, audience. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> this is typically our month monthly edition of the Curbsiders Journal Club. You know, we had been doing tweaks to the format here and there, and we really want to thank everyone for sending article suggestions and comments on social media and uh, email. So, out of the exhausting list of things we stuffed into our brain holes this last month, we plucked some interesting um, articles to share with you today. You know. For those keeping track, we're doing, we're trying to keep these discussions to about four minutes. Um, and our producer, uh, Sarah Roberts had been, uh, giving us a gong at a, at a 30 second warning. But as you will soon find out, we, um, blew right through all our, <laughs> our predefined, uh, measures on that. Well, Uncle Bob, thank you so much for joining us tonight. 
And before we get into the multiple articles that we're going to talk about, I wanted to see if you could, if you had a pick of the week for us. Yes, uh, this especially goes after Paul, who's a, a movie buff. Um, Would You Be My Neighbor, which is a documentary uh, that is probably very important to all of you young guys. It's the story of Mr. Rogers. Um, it's a documentary. It's absolutely brilliant. And everybody in the in the audience clapped at the end of the movie. It's very heartwarming and gives you some real insight to uh, your childhood. I was I was actually talking. My mom was telling me that she had seen that, and I was talking to her about this last night at dinner. That I was so happy that nothing bad ever came out about Mister Rogers because, <laughs> like, he was just you know it like with Cosby. That was another show that I was a huge fan of as a kid. But Mister Rogers, he stands as a good guy, and I I believe the documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but I believe it. It kind of held up that right. It really does. It is for sure on the list. I. I, the timing is important because I realize I'm going to spend 90 minutes of my life sobbing, and I just I need to to make sure I'm in the right venue for that. So I just uh, uh, other than, yeah, so I plan on watching it, but in a private place where uh, I can hide my shame. You but, yeah, you will I, laugh a lot though. Oh, good. All right. You know, I, I recently watched a, a documentary very similar about Carol Spinney, who was Big Bird, and that was that was also a very good documentary. If you sort of like that sort of nostalgic, great documentary about someone who was very instrumental in my like childhood as well. So. I feel obligated to give a pick. So if if you YouTube Eddie Murphy and Mr. Robinson's neighbor is it Robinson's <laughs> name Mr. Robinson's neighborhood, it's uh it's an old SNL clip. It's pretty funny. And and it's and it's used in the documentary. It is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just and love hopefully the part none of his other early stuff. Yeah, he's telling the That's kids a spoiler. <laughs> it's yeah, it's funny. All right, Chris, maybe we should maybe we should get to the show. All right. So, as discussed earlier, we're just going to um go with hot takes today just because we have a special guest and we wanted to be able to talk a lot about different uh subjects today. And so our first pick actually comes from Uncle Bob here. So, the article uh first article that I picked is clinical implications of revised pooled cohort equations for estimating atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk from the July uh, 2018 Annals of Internal Medicine. I picked this article because when the original estimation equation came out in 2013, I didn't believe it. That's the ASCVD risk calculator? Yeah, this is the risk calculator that was uh, first used for whether or not you should treat hyperlipidemia hyperlipidemia and start people on statins. It's been used now for the new hypertension guidelines, and it's also used for whether you should take aspirin to prevent stroke. So as of today, as a 69-year-old man, uh, I that old equation says I have a 12.7% risk of uh, having cardiovascular disease in the next 10 years. Hmm. I didn't really believe it, uh, and I thought they were missing something in here. What this article did is it looked at the original estimation of the 10-year risk that was based upon very old data, mostly Framingham data, and they got newer uh, data sets and revised the equation and also used some much more sophisticated uh, statistical techniques. The other thing they did is they were very careful in their validation. They developed the models on 80% of the data and held out 20% of the data. Uh, the new risk estimator, which you can find online uh, on the article, now says that I have a 7% chance. 
I'm much happier with that. <laughs> um, the, the, the strength of this article is the sophistication of the statistics and the more up-to-date cohorts that they develop the model on. I, I do have inside information that the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology is going to look at these new equations and consider changing them. This article has a, a chance to have a major impact. Uh, what they point out is that as many as 12 to 20, 000, 20 million people are yeah. being overestimated. And it particularly was bad, bad in African Americans where they didn't have enough data in the original cohorts to get stable estimations, and they do in these. So it's a very complex statistical article that may really impact our practice. I'm not sure if if Matt remembers this or not, but I really did not like that calculator. And I had continued using the Framingham Risk Calculator and, and the MESA if there was a CAC. A lot of the residents are now using the CAD Consortium. Is, it, is that somewhat as a result of this article? No, because this article just came out okay. uh, this month, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about it over the next six months. Okay. Uh, I actually have talked to one of the authors uh, of this article who gave me some inside scoop that there's going to be a lot of discussions about not only whether they sh you should switch to this, but how do you keep these estimators updated? One of the things that's happened over time is there's less cardiovascular disease in the 2010s than there was in the 1990s. Right. And so if you estimate back on 1990 data, then you're going to have an overestimation for today. Yeah, I think it's going to require a lot of interesting uh, metadata analysis in order to more to, to hone predictive analytics appropriately. But that's that's more of a, a long term outlook. And I, I think this kind of brings up a question. Won't this have something um, to say about the blood pressure guidelines that were recently pu published by the ACC, AHA, AAPA, ABC, ACPM, AGS, APHA, ASH, ASPC, NMA, PCNA? Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, because that was setting the 10% cutoff, right? right for, for, yeah, it was. You know, as part of your decision. It absolutely. So this affects whether someone should be on a statin. So let's take people of my cohort. Uh, your uncles, <laughs> and uh, at at our age, just just your age alone, even with a great cholesterol and a great blood pressure, you get above ten percent. Right. Mm -hmm. With the new estimator, you don't, and so it's going to have a lot of people who are no longer recommended for statins, for tighter blood pressure control, or for starting an aspirin to prevent a stroke. So it really is part of three guidelines. I think. We should mention, though, that this is not necessarily – the, even the authors, I think, are not recommending we just jump to right to using this in clinical practice yet. it has. They were mentioning it has to be validated by other groups, and I, so I, I don't think I'm going to start using this yet. I'm, I'm not sure if anybody – how anyone else feels about it. From what I remember correctly, like when – in 2013, when the, when the, the pool cohort calculator first came out, there wasn't – much in terms of validation either before we, right. they recommended us starting using that. And we did see those validation studies coming afterwards. So I don't think necessarily they may make their choice before validation studies come out. And that's actually one of the reasons why I was using the Framingham Risk Calculator in the MESA instead of the ASCVD calculator. Well, th this new calculator is much better validated than the original calculator. Okay, fair point. Well, I think Sarah, I think Sarah was telling us that we yep. that was our 30-second warning, so we better... 
Better go on to the next study here. And so we have a duo of studies here that uh, Matt wants, wants to talk about, um, both uh, related to pulmonary embolisms. Do you want to talk, tell us a little bit about them, Matt? Sure. So I'm spending, uh, I'm spending my time in the hospital these days, so I, I think about pulmonary embolism sorry a lot. sorry to hear that. And yeah, yeah, I feel like a sellout. Anyway, the first study that I want to talk about is, does negative uh, CT pulmonary angiography always exclude a pulmonary embolism? And this is from the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis in June 2018. And uh, it's, it's looking at, does a negative CT pulmonary angiography effectively rule out a pulmonary embolism in all risk, all risk groups? It was a systematic review and meta-analysis where they looked at 22 studies with over 11,000 patients, and they were trying to figure out which patients can we send home from the emergency department. Because when you look at all comers, uh, the a CT pulmonary angiogram would only miss about two two and a half percent, roughly, patients uh, if you have a negative CT pulmonary angiogram. If you're sending home all comers, but then if you separate it out into the risk of pulmonary embolism, patients that are judged to be low to, to intermediate risk have a have a very low, like 2% or less risk of pulmonary embolism, but patients that are judged to have the highest pretest probability, then those patients you might miss, according to this study, up to 8% of those patients, you might miss a, um, not a pulmonary embolism necessarily, but up to 8% of those patients might come back with either a deep vein thrombosis, a DVT, or a pulmonary embolism if you if you study them out to three months versus the low to interme- intermediate risk group you're going to have like less than three percent of the patients will come back with a a DVT or a pulmonary embolism so I think this article is actually uh, practice changing it for me in that I I wasn't really I had never really thought you know to separate it out that way so. Basically, high risk is like the the way they judged it in most of the studies was they they looked at the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in a given cohort within a study, and they said, okay, in the subgroups that had a prevalence of pulmonary embolism of forty percent or higher, those patients had a essentially had a high pretest probability of having pulmonary embolism. So they considered those patients to be high risk. And in that in that group, when they kind of pulled all those together from all these various studies, they saw that, that they were missing probably, well, not missing. At, at three months, if you followed those patients out, in some, in some degree, they were going to find a pulmonary embolism or a DVT in those patients. And the other studies they were using would be a combination of like, they could do CT venography, where they're kind of C, doing a CT uh, venous study of the lower extremities or just lower extremity Dopplers. And that's how they were, they were finding these. So, or the patient would represent with signs and symptoms of PE, and then they would find them that way. Could it just be propagation of the initial index event though? So it, maybe they couldn't have found it in the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible. Or maybe, yeah. Or maybe like, you know, it's totally unrelated. And the first time, you know, it's just a coincidence that the first time they they didn't have anything going on, and then some some event happened that changed their risk, and they yeah. got a venous thromboembolism. Uh, my concern for this one is essentially that uh, if an ER physician sees a patient who's presenting and, and it appears that as though the patient has a PE and has a negative CT, does this necess- it, could this necessarily tie our hands to say, okay, well, we, we've got to investigate this further when some of these incidences have to be a de novo um, incident and not necessarily uh, related to the index event? I, I think what 
at least what the authors were recommending, they're saying if if you have a really high suspicion that somebody has a pulmonary embolism based on their history and something like the Wells or their Geneva score, and their CT pulmonary angiogram is negative, then you you can still be justified in doing a follow up test, like just making sure there's no clot in their legs, like doing a a, a, a venous venous Dopplers before you send them home, and then having close follow up of some sort. I think that is reasonable. I mean, and it's not as yeah, there's no a there's no algorithm yet. They're they're proposing that we should develop algorithms for this. To, you know, for this group of patients, this high risk group of patients, like Wells score of six or higher predicts a forty percent, you know, chance of of uh, pretest probability of of DVT PE uh, or pulmonary embolism rather. So, if if hmm. that person has a really high Wells score and you get a negative CT pulmonary angiogram, it's reasonable to either do additional testing or to keep like a close eye and and really have a high suspicion, kind of be vigilant, essentially. Yeah. Can these patients go home from the ER? Is I think his next question. Yeah, uh, yeah. If if they're, I mean, can they go home from the ER? So I guess it depends on what else they have going on. But that would that, that supposed would be... to be a segue. I was I was throwing a segue. <laughs> Didn't work out. I see. Uncle Uncle Bob, before we go on to the next article, do, I'm not sure how you deal with this kind of with this kind of thing. Like you know, the CT pulmonary angiogram is it like case closed if if they have a negative study. I think it depends on uh, how good you think your radiology department is. Um, if you really trust the radiology department, if if it's a if it's a really high probability, then I might go ahead and go and get a VQ scan or get uh, dop, venous Dopplers looking for a DVT. Uh, that situation doesn't seem to come up as much uh, at uh, the Cashlack VA. <laughs> okay. So Have you ever called the radiologist and said, hey, I really think he's got a PE. Can you look at it again? I've gone down to radiology. Yeah. I actually have a relationship with the radiologist, and we, we look at films together on a regular basis. That's really good. I got I to gotta make more friends in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a sellout, so. Well, the radiologist was once my medical student, and apparently I treated him well. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next the next study I have that's related, which I think we can go through pretty quickly, is in patients who have a low-risk pulmonary embolism, can these patients be discharged from the emergency department? And this appeared in the um, academy, what is this, academic emergency, uh, academic emergency medicine in May 2018. <laughs> so what they did was they, they put these patients on, if they were deemed to have low risk by the HESTIA criteria, which we talked about back on our pulmonary embolism episode with uh, Oren Friedman, the, the HESTIA criteria, there are these 11 things that you can, it's kind of a checklist you can go through and you basically look at things like hemodynamic instability and just, a, it's a checklist. And if, if they have none of those, if they don't check off any of those, then they, they can be deemed low risk and they can potentially be treated as outpatients if your clinical judgment agrees with the, the negative HESTIA criteria. So they put those patients on oral rivaroxaban and sent them out, and they followed them for 90 days, and there was no deaths. There was no difference in bleeding events based on whether they were admitted to the hospital before being sent, you know, for, for a night or two before being sent home. So I wanted to know, is anybody is anybody in the group kind of following this? Like you have a low-risk PE, and you're just putting the patient on a DOAC and sending them home? We'll go to Uncle Bob first. We haven't not done that yet. I did have a low-risk P come in uh, and went down to the radiologist and found out that it wasn't a PE. Uh, 
Um, so we reread it, uh, and they decided that it was read as a subsegmental. And I, I have to ask you because I haven't looked at the study myself. Did they distinguish between subsegmental and segmental PEs here? Because if it's low risk and it's subsegmental, some radiologists say that's not really a PE. Hmm. Uh, you know what? I that I would have to dig deeper into like the supplemental materials. When I was going through this, I did not come across that. They basically just said patients had a confirmed pulmonary embolism, and then when you looked at the you you did the so confirmed pulmonary embolism by whatever mechanism, then you go to the Hestia criteria. If that's zero, then those patients can be potentially discharged home. I will say. It was interesting. They had a really hard time recruiting for this study. This was an industry-funded study. Uh, mm. uh, they they did have trouble recruiting for it because I think a lot of people were worried about the the risk. They said that, uh, but then by the end, once I guess once the institutions were doing it, they said some of the institutions started just like it became like a practice in that institution to send home these low-risk people. I, I think that the the whole question of subsegmental is. Uh, embedded in both of these because that that seems to be the big debate when I talk to the radiologists and the pulmonologists is what do you do with sub subsegmental reads? I'll, I could tell you my practice is and and I think this is pretty consistent with what the chess guideline said the the 2016 chess guideline which is if if the patient if it's plausible that the symptoms or the the symptoms the patient presented with could be a PE, or if the patient is high risk because maybe they have an active cancer, or maybe they just had a surgery or something like that, then then I would take it more seriously, and I would probably treat that patient for the minimum amount of time and and, and watch them and decide if I'm going to extend beyond three months or six months, whatever I decide is the initial course. That's that's my current. And but if it's low risk, like if it doesn't make sense for this person to have a pulmonary embolism. Then I, I I would be comfortable sending some of those patients home, but it's it's really like like we talked about with Doctor Friedman, it, you really have to be sure that the patient has like good follow up and they're reliable and they don't have any like risks of for instability or any signs or symptoms of instability. Uh, it's yeah, it's tough. It's it's a really it's a tough this one. Would be- and almost impossible to recruit into just the medical or social reason for admission greater than 24 hours as a criteria. Like it's if mm. by definition, if you have something that's provoked a PE, probably there's something going on. And so you sort of <laughs> knock that out of whack. Like it's it's so rare that I see the healthy 23 year old after the long plane ride where you diagnose the hemodynamically stable pulmonary embolism. Like that's not the patient I'm ever seeing. Right. So yeah. it's maybe maybe it's my own exposure bias, but I, I just not seeing folks that don't have another reason for admission on top of the PE that's already that's right. prepared itself. Right. All right, let's uh, let's move on. So let's go from you know some of this these intense uh, inpatient uh, urgent care ED topic to something a little different. So um, Uncle Bob, you you also picked uh, another article that I thought was very interesting about metformin and its use in uh, patients with type two diabetes with uh, low GFRs. So uh, the title is metformin therapy may be safe in patients with type two diabetes and an estimated GFR. 30 to 60, from JAMA Internal Medicine, July 2018. So what really struck me about this article is there's been a recent change in the FDA and in guidelines about when we can use metformin. We were told not to use metformin when the estimated GFR was below 60 for a number of years, although not everybody paid attention to that. 
Uh, and recently they said you could go down to 30. So this is a confirmatory article to say, is it safe? Now, there's some problems with this article because it's all based upon administrative data. And you always have to be a little skeptical about administrative data studies. What they had was they had creatinines, not necessarily when the patient entered the study in a retrospective cohort, but when they measured a creatinine. And we assume that the creatinine was stable, and we assume that the estimation uh, formula was appropriate for those patients, but we don't really know. The other thing is they looked for a hospitalization with a diagnosis of acidosis. They don't specifically say lactic acidosis, and since we're worried about lactic acidosis for metformin patients, they just said acidosis. Anyway, in this study... They could find no difference for type uh, stage 3A or stage 3B chronic kidney disease. And I, I mentioned those because most people don't haven't gone over to the 2013 guidelines on changing how we think about chronic kidney disease. Uh, a GFR 45 to, to 59 is stage 3A. That may not even be kidney disease. That would be a very interesting discussion with kidney boy about that's is that really kidney disease clearly 3b which is 30 to 44 you're starting to get the complications of chronic kidney disease but in neither one of those was there any increase in in hospitalizations for acidosis in patients on metformin compared to patients who were on other di- uh, diabetes treatments they were very very careful they used propensity analysis which is a way of matching people with similar risk factors for uh, acidosis just to make sure that they could just focus just on the metformin. And they have some data, not great data, some data that in metformin use with GFRs under 30, stage 4, 15 to 30, those people had an increase in acidosis. We're not sure that it's lactic acidosis, and we're not sure why they had acidosis, but we do know they have acidosis. Now, the current guidelines say if it's above 30, you're okay, and you can use metformin. This is huge because metformin is generic, and it's probably the single best uh, initial drug for uh, type 2 diabetes and probably the single best ongoing drug for type 2 diabetes. So this just... Uh, adds a lot of support for what the FDA has decided and what the the uh, diabetes community has already recommended. Now, Dr. Center, one thing I think from a clinical standpoint, you know, I see a lot of patients in my outpatient clinic, and you know, definitely if if their if their creatinines are down, like to their eGFRs are down to like you know, 40, 44, you know, I definitely will be thinking about metformin in these patients, but I, I feel like I get less and less of this sort of, um, uh, this barrier or this, this, um, uh, this area where, you know, if I find these patients maybe more labile in terms of, you know, decrease in, uh, uh, creatinine, um, I'm sorry. I mean, decrease in uh, renal function quite quickly for some of these patients. Like they can be easily dehydrated and their AKI could be much worse. I mean, do you have concerns about these types of patients? Um, I think that for all, all of your patients who have diabetes, you just have to watch them and make sure they stay stable. What happens is once your GFR gets down below about 45, 
your the ability of the kidney to concentrate really has dropped off. And so they much more easily get volume contracted because they, they can't concentrate their urine as well. So they're always at risk for uh, what we call AKI, which may just be volume contraction on top of uh, chronic kidney disease. I get a l- little nervous about the term acute kidney injury when I'm not sure if the kidneys were actually injured or the uh, the volume is, is injured. I think you just have to watch that. And there may be some patients that it doesn't make sense by clinical judgment to put on metformin. But in general, we think it's probably the best uh, diabetes medication. It's the least expensive. Uh, we're going to be talking about another article about a very expensive diabetes medication <laughs> yeah. later on. So like going on with another outpatient, what I feel is actually an outpatient issue. Um, Paul has a really interesting article that he picked out about our ongoing opiate crisis and a little bit about that. Do you want to talk about that, Paul? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. This is in keeping with me choosing articles that already align with my kind of overall gestalt and then also have statistics that I don't quite understand. <laughs> so it really sort of it's, it kind of matches my, my, my ongoing theme. So this is medication for opioid use disorder after non-fatal opioid overdose and association with mortality, a cohort study uh, done by La Rochelle et al. Uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, I believe June 2018. So a pretty recent article. Um, and so, you know, obviously, this is a hot topic right now. We're we're all sort of deeply enmeshed in, in the opioid crisis. I I just came off inpatient service just for three days, and literally a full third of my service was um, were hospitalized either directly because of opioid use disorder or some sequelae thereof. So it was either endocarditis or overdose or you know um, awaiting rehab for for. For, and so it, I, I'm seeing – it feels like I'm seeing more – maybe it's just being recognized more because we're talking about it. But in any case, um, what this article looked at is the association between treatment with medication-assisted therapy for opioid use disorder after an overdose and the association with both um, opioid-related mortality and all-cause mortality. And so it's really interesting – they did a lot of fascinating data mining with this. So this is this happened in the state of Massachusetts. It was actually it was mandated by state law, which they make a point of saying, which I kind of enjoyed, <laughs> and and as such did not require IRB approval. So it sounds like just a dream study. And they actually they linked seven different data sets together. Um, so things that looked at claims data, they looked at uh, ambulance services, uh, they looked at uh, like Department of Vital Signs, like they looked at a number of registries and linked all this data together. And use that to identify patients who had this this index event of uh, unintentional opioid overdose, and then looking at all these data sets and identifying whether or not these patients received um, some form of medication for opioid use disorder either in the twelve months before or the twelve months following this this overdose. Are you guys with me so far? Am I still making sense? Yep. Yes, I think so. Okay, it's it's really it's fascinating because they teased out the data for each of the medications in a different way, and I won't go through it because it's it's probably only fascinating to me, but they looked specifically at methadone maintenance therapy. They looked at buprenorphine and buprenorphine with um, naloxone, and they looked at naltrexone. So sort of bup-based, methadone-based, and naltrexone-based. And so essentially, they found patients with this index event, and then they tracked out, and then this is where things start to fall apart for me. They have, (laughs) you know, illustrations, they have these boxes that are shaded, and there's a shade with a dot, and they look at whether or not the patient was exposed to the medication assisted therapy within the month or whether it was not. And I, I didn't, I had a hard time parsing through all of this, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, but I can tell you that the takeaway, and this is, um, 
when you talk about those weaknesses, is that patients who were exposed to medication-assisted therapy after an overdose event had lower all-cause mortality and lower opioid-reduced mortality. And this is specifically for methadone maintenance therapy and, and buprenorphine-based therapy. The other, the other sort of statistics that come along with this are also fascinating. So after an overdose, only 30% of patients were actually offered medication-assisted therapy. Um, and when I shouldn't say offered, were exposed to based on the claims data that they used to actually find out if patients use them or not. So it seemed to point out to sort of a, a huge underutilization of a modality that seems to have real benefit and actually reduces mortality, um, mm-hmm. not just from overdose, but from from all causes. So bear attacks, lightning strikes, so forth and so on. They didn't actually specifically mention the bear attacks. Um, but the strengths of this, it's a huge cohort. So even after they threw away um, kids and adolescents because they're treated a little bit differently, even after they got rid of patients who had any signal that there might be a malignancy because those patients are at risk for higher mortality, even if they threw away some other stuff, they still had over 17,000 patients that they looked at. So it's, it's a large cohort. They had an expansive data set they looked at. And so it's, it's kind of hard to argue with their results. And, and probably some of the reduction of mortality is attributable to the medications themselves. And that's fantastic. But also probably some of it's a marker for uh, just being linked in with some sort of ongoing care, whether that's with the primary care doctor or a methadone maintenance program like that, that kind of stuff I don't think was parsed out of the data. But I, I, my suspicion is just exposure to ongoing treatment uh, and having that kind of supervision and support was probably also helpful in reducing uh, the all-cause mortality. Now, Paul, the, the naltrexone arm actually had different different numbers, right? That's right. Yeah, it was used much less, um, much less commonly. Yeah. And then also, it's just by dint of the way that's administrated, you know, you get a month-long injection. Um, they really only sort of followed it out for one month. And a lot of folks who received the naltrexone, they couldn't find record that they came back for a subsequent shot. So it didn't seem to be used in an ongoing manner quite the same way that methadone maintenance therapy were or buprenorphine-based therapy was. Um, so it's just between the low numbers and the fact that they couldn't really sort of track it out, um, I think, made it tricky to sort of extrapolate its usefulness in terms of mortality, um, either opioid-related or otherwise. I wonder if part of that is because the with naltrexone they're getting a shot and then they're out of they can if they want to be they can be out of healthcare for a full month before they get another one versus usually the method methadone requires a daily they have to report somewhere and and with buprenorphine it's usually a weekly or twice weekly thing. Right, at least at the outset until you're you've established and sort of demonstrated that you you have some consistency in coming to care. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So I I know we have to wrap up here. Sarah's given us the signal, but. I did I did look through this a little bit, Paul. It looks like before the study, about like twenty six percent of the patients, so like a quarter of the patients roughly were on had been exposed to some sort of M O U D mood. Is what is that how you pronounce it, Paul? The uh I, their acronym no, I, I for do not pronounce it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the the medication for the opioid use disorder, whatever whatever the uh whatever they were calling it. Anyway, so it it just this just points out that right now it, these medications could be helping people and it's it's sad how few patients are actually getting put on these and it, practicing inpatient medicine you you see so many patients that you feel you could be helping if you could be plugging them into these programs but it's uh, for my hospital at least currently a cash lack i don't have the pathways in place to do that and i i hope that that's coming because i know some other hospitals within the cash lack system have have some things that hopefully will spread so we can help these people better. 
I was just going to say, I think I, I agree with that, that point that Matt's making and uh, seeing things from the inpatient perspective, actually from as an outpatient provider, I think this is where we really, um, this is like the call for primary care that, you know, this is where I saw blow up on Twitter too, talking about where, you know, maybe this is an area where, you know, primary care needs to sort of help step in and, you know, learn to be able to manage like methadone and, uh, and things like that for MAT. Um, and that this is an area of where we can expand and be able to actually have some sort of impact in in um, the population here. Yeah, I'll, I'll make this real quick. And I'm, I'm sorry, apologies to Sarah for running over a little bit, but just having at one point been exposed to a nonsensical methadone taper on the inpatient side, you do like 40, 30, 20 done. I, I, invariably, those patients would leave against medical advice or they were just miserable. And I'm just seeing patients stick around longer when Suboxone started in the inpatient setting. And then also to have the capacity to refer them to an outpatient follow-up is, is the other thing. So I've actually I've fired off my first outpatient prescription for Suboxone and arranged for follow-up for ongoing MAT. And it just, it just feels so much better than what we've been doing in the past. Okay, so we'll move back on over to diabetes. Dr. Centaur actually picked another diabetes article. Um, and um, I actually thought this was a, quite interesting as well. Dr. Centaur, or I'm sorry, Uncle Bob, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so the canagliflozin and renal outcomes in type 2 diabetes results from the CANVAS program randomized clinical trials from the Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology, June of 2018. So this is a further analysis of two previously published uh, articles about CANVAS and CANVAS uh, R, uh, which were two studies that were designed to look at heart disease. If you remember there are studies showing that the uh, SGLT2s, because canagliflozin is an SGLT2 inhibitor, that these uh, drugs were tested and have to be tested to see in people with heart disease, does it increase heart disease risk or decrease? It showed that it decreased heart disease risk over time, but... They also collected data uh, of the creatinines in these people, and fortuitously, in two different studies, one with empagliflozin and the other with canagliflozin, uh, they have preliminary data suggesting less progression of kidney disease. Now, this article, which is sponsored by the drug company and analyzed by the drug company, wanted to look at how should we actually test a drug to see if it's improving uh, renal function? Well, the classic way to look at a study like this, if you go back and look at the ACE inhibitor and ARB studies, is to plot the estimated GFR over time, get a slope of that, and see if at the initiation of a drug you can change the slope so that the GFR is not going down as fast as it was without whatever drug we're trying. Um, what they showed was uh, that they used the standard way of measuring this, which was uh, a doubling of the creatinine. That is a 57% decrease in renal function, uh, ending up on end stage or dying a renal death. Those trended towards the right position. When they looked at estimated GFR decline, which is not something the FDA uh, accepts at this point, 
uh, they were able to show that in the patients who got canagliflozin, either at 100 milligrams or 300, and the studies are done so they start them on 100 and get them up to 300 uh, per day, and compared these to placebo, that the the renal function uh, stayed better over time. But these were not people who had renal disease. So this is really more about the technique for doing the next study. What's really interesting is on Twitter yesterday, uh, the Credence study, which is their follow-up study where they took people who started out with kidney disease, had to be stopped early because the canagliflozin actually had a very positive effect and it was unethical to continue giving placebo to people who already had kidney disease who were started on these drugs. Now, here's the big question. Number one, it is sponsored by a drug company. Number two, how expensive is this stuff? So I looked it up. It's about $500 a month to get uh, flozen. It has a trade name. I'm not going to say the trade name, but if one of you wants to say it, you can. I think this is fascinating that we now have a class of drugs, the SGLT2s, that decrease heart disease, decrease uh, kidney disease, and decrease mortality in some other studies, but it's really darn expensive. Yeah. I was looking at the I, I was looking at the composite outcome here. It looks like there was most of the events, as you would predict, were this forty percent EGFR reduction that accounted for most of the events in this trial. There wasn't really the the confidence interval is, is very wide for the uh, doubling of the serum creatinine and the uh, for end stage kidney disease or death from renal causes. The confidence interval is very wide and crossed kind of the you know, crossed one. So it was sort of a wash there, but the, the, the creatinine doubling or the 40% reduction sort of favored the SGLT2. And I think that these, yeah, these drugs, these drugs are promising. And when I was able to use them, uh, they, they seemed to be pretty well tolerated by patients. And we, we had talked about this on a prior episode. They, they have a bit of a reduction in blood pressure and, uh, with, with the canagliflozin, however you pronounce it. Uh, canagliflozin? Canagliflozin, sure. Uh, let's go with that. With the canagliflozin, the one thing, this, this is the one that where there was an increased risk of amputations, which everyone's like, I don't know what to do with that. So I would say if you are in a place where you can prescribe this for patients, if they have like tons of vascular risk factors and they're already losing, you know, getting amputations, you might want to consider not using it. Other than that, yeah, the the UTI stuff and the you know, the increased risk of like fungal infections, uh, like, yeah, I, I, I did not find that that to be limiting too too limiting. Right. There was a couple patients, but it, Stuart, you use a lot more of this than yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I actually use it quite often. And the, the risk for fungal infections is higher, obviously the higher the A1C is. And so is the reduction A1C because of how it works. And so for those patients that have a significantly high A1C, I'm going to reduce it by some other means before I start to want to SGLT2 inhibitor. Oh, and by the way, the way that I think, think about this medication, I think about it like a question, like, can I gliflozin? Of course you can. Of course you can. <laughs> Continuing on our theme of diabetes, uh, Paul, you want to take it away? Yeah, and I'll make this quick, which is okay. It's so it's I stumbled across this article on Twitter. Um, so this is the performance of the 2015 U.S. Preventative Services Task Force screening criteria for prediabetes and undiagnosed diabetes um, from 2018, the Journal of General Internal Medicine. 
Um, I, I chose this article because obviously it's directly relevant to practice, but more importantly, because the first author is the nicest guy on the entire planet. So it's <laughs> uh, Matt O'Brien at a Northwestern, who's just a lovely human being and has been passionate about this topic for years. And when I saw his name on the paper, I thought, well, I should give that a read. And then it turns out it's a great paper, too. So basically what it looked at, if you if you look up the current USPS TEF recommendations um, for screening for diabetes, there's this adults age 40 to 70 years who are overweight or obese, grade B. And then weirdly, there's this tiny box that just sits in isolation underneath this recommendation that says this applies to adults 40 to 70 years in primary care settings without obvious symptoms. Persons who have a family history of diabetes, have a history of gestational diabetes or PCOS, are members of certain racial ethnic groups, that is African-Americans, American Indians, Asian-Americans, Hispanics or Latinos, or Native Hawaiians or Pacific Islanders, may be at increased risk for diabetes at a younger age or at a lower body mass index. Clinicians should consider screening earlier in persons with one or more of these characteristics. So that's in a box underneath that I don't think I've ever looked at before. And so what this study did briefly is that it looked at these limited criteria, so adults 40 to 70, overweight or obese, and then it looked at the expanded criteria. So it had included all those folks included in sort of that sub-recommendation of non-white race um, or family history of diabetes or gestational diabetes or the other things that are listed. And so not surprisingly, I'll just cut to the punchline. So they, they analyzed NHANES data to actually um, utilize both screening criteria to see what the sensitivity and specificity were for the diagnosis of dysglycemia. So not just diabetes, but also uh, prediabetes is defined primarily by an A1C greater than 5.7. And so basically, the takeaways they found that, not surprisingly, if you broaden the the criteria for screening, you decrease the specificity and increase the sensitivity. So no no shocks there. But they find that if you do broaden who you screen for, you actually decrease disparity. So you actually you'll catch more dysglycemia in non-white patients. You will, um, and you tend to catch more dysglycemia in patients that are um, either underserved or have socioeconomic issues or other barriers to care. And so by broadening the criteria, you might be catching diabetes before it becomes diabetes in a group that's at risk and does worse when they develop diabetes in the first place. So if you if you target your screening to include non-white race and certain historical features, you may catch a group that is more at risk for sort of bad business sort of later on. So they ultimately advocate for uh, sort of the broader screening criteria um, as, as outlined, I think, a couple of times. Paul, I, I think this one is a full stack, practice changing. Yeah, absolutely. Even though, have we done that at all? Why, why are you choosing my article for the stack? I hate this so much. I think you just answered your own question. <laughs> Actually, I think Stuart Stick's article is going to be a full stack as well. It's a, it's a great pick. So, uh, yeah. The audience one, isn't huh? going to get that until after the fact, but I guess that's okay. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so, so my article is, is exceedingly uh, serious here. So um, it's Nose Picking and Nasal Carriage of Staph Aureus. This was published in the Infection Control and Hospital Epidemi- Epidemiology Journal in August of 2006. So this article looks at uh, 238 patients who were in an ENT clinic and 86 healthy volunteer uh, hospital employees that were screened and looks at the um, behavior of nose picking and uh it correlates that with uh, examination findings co- that were consistent with nose picking and then looks at the carriage rates of Stefarius. Now, this is a, an exceedingly interesting article only because um, 
I, I think this is probably the first article I could find that actually correlates nose picking to Staph aureus. I'm sure there's other articles out there. This is the first one that I could find that I could actually get my librarian to, to find for me and then print out for me because I could not download it otherwise. <laughs> so um, strengths, let's see. Let's face it. Uh, there aren't very many articles. So this, is, this one's just great. So the first thing that kind of sticks out is just how slap uh, it's almost like a slapstick comedy reading through this one. Um, so here's a couple of, the, I'm just going to read some of the quotes. Um, so here's just eye-opening quotes. The habit of nose picking is probably initiated by the presence of trusts. Um, we realize that the questionnaire we used is a subjective tool for determining nose picking behavior. It was un- wholly unfeasible for us to secretly observe the nose picking behavior of participants. And then they actually tried to give a, uh, patho- pathophysiological basis for the, the, uh, um, colonization of Staph aureus. Um, so nose picking damages nasal mucosa and dermis. These surfaces act as first line defenses to microbial colonization and invas- invasion. These lesions on the surface expose extracellular matrix uh, molecules, including fibronectin collagen to which a Staph aureus can adhere. So they go into, in, in, goes way into the, the weeds on the pathophysiological basis. Um, so the take home so point here I, is that I, I was going to, I was just going to bring up how did, yeah, the, the, I believe that part of the article was they had an ENT doctor inspect yes. people's noses yes. and, and, <laughs> yes. and, and look for signs of nose picking yes. to prove that some people they look were for, liars. <laughs> yes, exactly. So they looked for nasal trauma and basically said, aha, you said you didn't pick your nose, but I found out that you actually did. <laughs> so interestingly enough, the lowest risk for staph aureus carriers were the liars. So those who said, I don't pick my nose, and then they inspect the nose and said, well, it looks like you do. They were the lowest risk for, st- for carriage. The highest risk for carriage were those that said, you know what, I picked my nose. And then the ENT guy looked at the nose and said, you know what, I agree with you. You really do pick your nose. And so they were at the highest risk for Staph aureus carriage. And the frequency of, of nose picking, so they could say, you know, I never do. I rarely do. Sometimes do. Frequently, you know, just all the time. So the more frequently that they uh, admitted to picking their nose, the more likely, not just that they had Staph aureus, but the, the actual colony forming units in a logarithmic scale. So it was linear, but it was logarithmic. Um, uh, it, it increased in, in, with the, uh, the, the line of regression, with, which was pretty uh, strikingly uh, um, appropriate. Okay, so final judgment? The takeaway <laughs> point is to lie about picking your nose. The takeaway point is to not pick your nose, or if you do, lie about it. <laughs> How did we pick this article? <laughs> Stuart told me that he felt most comfortable picking articles that were, quote, off the beaten path. And I think I think he succeeded. Yeah, no, good stuff. A twelve-year-old article about nose picking. You are welcome, audience. <laughs> really high yield stuff. Now, you know, on the line of infectious disease, Uncle Bob, do you know the the console guys? Uh, I do know them. They're good guys. Well, so they they recently released a video talking about neckties. Um, do you wear a necktie when you are rounding in the hospital? Over ninety percent of the time. Okay. Mm. So they had they had this video and they released it um, on the Annals website and we'll we'll give a link to that in our show notes. But so they were talking about a reader who sent them a message saying that they recently visited the UK and found that none of the providers were allowed to wear a necktie. And um, they went back and to look at the actual evidence on this and they found that um, a lot of the evidence goes all the way back to um, a letter to the editor about a study of like 40 neckties where they um, uh, were only able to culture like coagulative staff um, in like nine of the 40 neckties. And based on this study, 
um, has been a lot of these policies about not wearing neckties. So I thought it was very interesting. And I just w- wanted to poll whether everyone else wore neckties when they rounded or saw patients in the hospital. This letter to the editor thing reminds me of that. Remember the famous letter to the editor in New England Journal that like started the opioid epidemic, supposedly. I think this one's a little bit less uh, less risky, but I I do not wear a necktie. Uh, I I hardly ever wear a necktie anymore. I've been uh, I've been going with the pulmonary tuxedo recently, which is the uh, with khaki pants and a scrub top. Sometimes I wear or I wear like a, a polo shirt or a collared shirt. So on on a side note, don't they not do contact precautions for MRSA in UK? Isn't that a thing? Does anyone know? I don't know. I can't speak to that. Okay. I was just looking it up. I, I couldn't find that they do contact precautions, but you know, if the consult guys can look into that one too. Yeah. But part of the reason we can talk about that. Part of the reason Chris was asking about the attire is because there's this article that Paul had dug up uh, which was recently in the BMJ Open by Petrilli et al. And it was looking at like 10 academic medical centers and they polled patients about their impression. And the consult guys talked a little bit about this too. I don't know if it was the same study, but they- It was an older study, but yeah. similar. But they talked about like, does your impression of your doctor's care provided, does it differ based on what they're wearing? So there was like scrubs and then there was like the casual doctor. And then there was the doctor wearing- he was dressed casually or in scrubs, but with a white coat or dressed, you know, they, they had all these combinations and there was a shirt and tie and white coat. And of course that rated the highest, which I believe, Paul, is that what you, is that what you wear? Yeah. Yeah. Shirt, tie, white coat always. Right. Now, so if you, by the way, if you go yours... back to these infectious disease studies, like if you look at like the, the in vivo studies, like, actually, like where they just take neckties and like just dip it in an inoculum of like snap and then just stick it in an open wound and they're like yep causes infection I told you so <laughs> like there's no there's not a lick of evidence that it actually like nothing ever replicates a real world process but in any case uncle bob you're what, what do you what do you think i really want to know whether there's the difference between silk ties and wool ties <laughs> but they didn't study that because i've really gotten into wool ties recently apparently that makes me a hipster how about bow ties yeah, that bow ties might be good. Um, I think this is much ado about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like nose picking. Okay, so you're telling me you give this a short stack or, or just one hotcake? Uh, this doesn't even deserve uh, syrup. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should wrap up here, Chris. I think so. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Curbsiders Monthly Journal Club. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Center, or Uncle Bob, for joining us today. If you're like the solitary listener last month who wants to know um, what else we were, was on our reading list, you can email or tweet at Paul N. Williams with a Z, um, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. Matt, do you have anything else to add? Just that this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, or you can sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And we want your feedback, so send us an email at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We have accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Christopher Chu. We've got here with us Uncle Bob. Yes, and that is me, Uncle Bob. (laughs) All right. And I'm Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye. (laughs) 
goodbye. Thank you to Sarah Phoebe Roberts, our producer for this episode, who uh, who also does our wonderful show notes for these episodes. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Miss me? 